Hello and welcome to We Are The University, a podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Nick Safel. In this episode, we chat to Duncan Astle, a developmental neuroscientist who's based at the MRC Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit. Duncan and I talk about his recent study that uses machine learning to identify learning difficulties and why children may struggle at school. We also talk about his work with Pride in STEM and how the current scientific research publishing model needs to change. How did you find your sort of niche? Um, my, my PhD involves sticking a lot of electrodes on students' heads. Right. So it was a kind of classic cognitive neuroscience kind of PhD. We recruited undergraduate students. We made them perform these quite bizarre tasks where they had to switch between doing sort of task A, then to task B, then back to task A, and um, really kind of fine-grained questions about how does the brain switch from doing one thing to doing something else. Yeah. Um, and we would record um, EEG or electroencephalography from the head whilst they were doing it. And it was a really good thing to cut your teeth on, um, as it were. Yeah. Um, you know, we would run a paradigm, then we'd make some changes, then we'd run it again. Within two weeks, we'd have a complete new data set. And so that's where I kind of, I guess, learned the skills of the trade. Okay. But then when I was finished with that, I decided that I wanted to move in one of two directions, either a more kind of clinical route um, or a more kind of developmental route. And in the end, I went more with the developmental route. Right. So started to ask those kinds of questions, but in children. And so I moved to Oxford to work with Guy Sheriff in Kia Nobre. And we um, conducted a whole series of experiments um, looking at those kinds of cognitive control processes in children um, as they developed. And that's where I kind of gradually moved into development. And then as time wore on, I became more interested in kids who were struggling. So kids who weren't doing well for one mm-hmm. reason or another. Um, I was, became interested in um, cognitive training. So if you, for instance, if you train one cognitive skill, does that have any benefits? Does it alter brain physiology in any way? And does it have uh, wider therapeutic benefits? Um, and I think you've kind of gradually found that kind of niche over time. Okay. And there was no, there was no kind of golden moment. Right. Um, something that because I'm a, I've got because I'm um, funded by an MRC program. It, it one really good thing about that is that every five years you have to give an appraisal of what you've done right. in the last five years and say what you're going to do with the next five years. Yeah. Which is great practice. It's really great. Yeah. It's slightly scary, but it's yeah. great practice. And it really forces you to to think in a kind of programmatic way. Yeah. So we've got these different lines of research, but how do they all converge? What are the common themes, the common methods, the common goals of these different lines of research? Yeah. So all of our research is on kids, um, kids who struggle for different reasons, mm-hmm. um, and kids who are typically developing, um, trialing kind of novel paradigms. How do you do the comparison between the two? And it's so that's a really interesting question. So, so sometimes we have explicit control groups. So we recruit children who are matched in various different sort of right. age, gender, some cognitive skills, and and do formal comparisons in that way. Okay. But more and more, what we're finding is that we're what we're really interested in 
is what drives the variability in kids who are all supposed to be the same. Right. Okay. So, for example, we're running a really large study of kids growing up in low-income homes. Right. Now, traditionally, if you look at the literature, they're all kind of bracketed together as kids growing up essentially in poverty. Yeah. But if you look at the data, you soon realize that they don't behave like one group at all. No, of course. Um, there's massive amounts of variability. Yeah. And so we've realized that actually one of the core questions we're really interested in is what drives that variability. Yeah. Um, similarly, sometimes you have children who have been given a diagnosis of some kind and again that leads you to think well they must all be very similar and then you look uh, at them you look at their data you say well they're not similar at all in fact um they can be radically different from each other so m increasingly rather than doing these kinds of case control comparisons we're starting to use new methods things like machine learning or okay. network science that allow you to explore heterogeneity within a, a data set so we run a clinic for example for kids who are struggling at school. Right. So all the kids who are sent to see us are finding school difficult. Okay. For one reason or another. Yeah. So um, they've all got that in common. Exactly. Yeah. But you soon realize that they're a massively heterogeneous bunch. Okay. Um, different cognitive difficulties, some widespread, some specific. So we're sort of talking reading difficulties and speech difficulties. Which ones are we sort of... So our experience is that the kids we see, some of them have broad widespread cognitive problems right. on almost sort of every assessment we can think to give them okay some have much more kind of a, like a language phenotype yeah so they have um they're very poor at like decoding skills so they're listening skills essentially yeah and um and processing sounds they also their parents also tend to rate them as having language difficulties okay um so for instance they're not very good at using syntax and grammar right um then we've got another group of kids who tend to have more kind of memory problems and then a good chunk of those struggling learners actually, as far as we can tell, don't have any underlying cognitive problems at all. Right, so if, on the face of it, there are kind of these at least four, probably more, kind of different routes to being a struggling learner. Yes. Um, they've all been sent to us because they're struggling, yeah. but they're struggling for different reasons, we think. Okay. And that seems to us to be really important. There must be some sort of correlation. You can't have a sort of single diagnosis for each one. This The whole kind of diagnosis question is kind of a really kind of very current a very kind of thorny issue yeah and that for, for children and families diagnosis is a real landmark moment when of they course. get the, they get the professional recognition that yeah. things have indeed been tough and tougher than they should have expected yeah um, and that's very important and in a good system it should leave a leave a additional resources and support question we're asking is what comes next yes so does that yeah. diagnosis provide enough information for the professionals who have to then try and support those kids. So for, for instance, for the reception teacher in schools, does knowing that a child has an ADHD diagnosis mm -hmm. provide them with all the detail they need in order to be able to tailor their support for that child? And we think not. Yeah. So it's not in any way to kind of undermine the value of having the diagnosis, but it's to say that it doesn't provide enough specificity as to the ways in which that child is struggling. And. Um... When you say that you're using machine learning, how does machine learning differ from running a program, essentially? Oh, I guess it depends what you mean by running a program. Essentially, it is a program. Yeah. It's a simple kind of algorithm. Okay. That, I mean, there are lots of different types of machine learning. Yeah. So the, probably the most commonly used type is what's called supervised machine learning. That's where you know something already about the individuals. Yeah. And you're saying, right, 
what other data do we have on those people that is predictive of what we already know about them? Okay. Um, another type of machine learning, which is what we've been using, is unsupervised. Right. And the goal of that's a bit different. So essentially what you're saying is, let's pretend we know nothing okay. about this data yeah. set. And we want to learn about how it's organized, or in our case, how it's comprised. Right. Um, like who is in it. And so... So essentially, one of the kind of the really great things about that data set is that it allows you to make as few assumptions as possible. Okay. And we think that's really important. There's obviously great scope for hard theory-led research, and I'm not at all suggesting that we should do away with theory. But sometimes relying solely on that approach can lead us down various kind of wormholes with okay. research because we, we kind of design experiments to test a the theory. Oh, lo and behold, they support it, right? So we design some more to test it further. And we, or we refine the theory and you can hold, go down a kind of you whole avenue keep going yeah um for many many years many decades in yeah. fact that's happened a lot in psychology and in neuroscience yeah um only for us to find later on that many of those those findings don't hold water yeah um often because the person who designed the study designed it with the aim of supporting their hypothesis yeah um there may have been some subtle nudges along the way to help it get there um, often the sample sizes aren't very big. Okay. Um, so an a kind of complementary alternative approach is to have these large data sets where uh, yeah. you have power and to try and make as few assumptions about them as possible and allow the data to tell you okay. the story. And that's something that we've tried to do a lot of in the area of kids who struggle at school. Yeah. Um, so, for example, the theory would have told us that children with listening impairments kind of phonological impairments as they're called in the field yeah. would have reading problems but not yeah. math problems right that's what the theory told because okay but then you look at the theory and you realize well the theory has all been always been tested by going into school screening kids or choosing kids with a dyslexia diagnosis yes. to find kids with selective reading impairments and then showing that oh look lo and behold they've got these listening difficulties yeah so that's where that whole theory has come from yeah but that's not logically the same as saying every child who has a listening difficulty will have a selective reading impairment. And of course, what one thing that our data tells us really clearly is, yeah, there are lots of kids in there with these listening problems and they have a kind of broader language yeah. difficulty, but they don't have selective reading impairments. Okay. They're just as bad at maths as they are at reading. Right. Like and, and, and that's really important for a teacher to know because it means that there are yeah. lots of kids in class who, who seem to have these kind of across-the-board learning problems, but Correct. actually they could be coming from... A, quite a kind of specific route yeah um and so i think that's one really good illustration of why you sometimes having a large data set and making as few assumptions about it as possible can tell you things that the theory would not have predicted but that are nonetheless are really important for making future progress in the field yeah and i guess on the large data set numbers um how many kids are you talking that you recruit and how do you recruit them are you are they getting a is it geographically or across the uk what do you say? different studies um so that's the study of kids who are struggling the children are referred to a center that um a, a group of us set up okay in cambridge and so now we've had about 800 children referred. Right. So, you know, in some fields, 800 is seen as a really small number. Yeah. In the, in the sphere of developmental disorders and kids who are struggling, 800 is massive. Yeah. Especially when you consider that we've got, 
you know, good MRI data on about half of those kids. Okay. Oh, so they're coming in for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. they come in for, for at least... Well, they come in for two sessions. Okay. So one to do all the cognitive assessments and the right. behavior assessments, and then another one where they go through the MRI scanner. Right, okay. Um, so, yeah. In our sphere, in our field, yeah. that's a big number. Okay. And what do you sort of see from the MRI sort of data that... Well, one really useful thing you can use the MRI to do is to say, well, look, if you think there are generally different groups or different routes yeah. to learning from the cognitive data, then does that match up with the neural data? So, for example, okay. obviously, we haven't fed all of that into the into the machine learning algorithm. Yeah. But we can now essentially try and validate differences that we've learned about from the machine learning in the neuroimaging data. And, okay. and we were able to show that children with different profiles of impairment from the machine learning did indeed have kind of differently organized brains so there were different okay. different tracts that um, were less well connected for example yeah and in terms of the cognitive testing are you sort of using the same sort of diagnosis testing as say someone who was going through it um to be tested for dyslexia would be used or what are you sort of the diagnosis procedures are, are a little bit haphazard right um for something like ADHD, for yeah. example, you would that would come from a CAMS route, so a child and adolescent mental health okay. service, probably an ADHD clinic in Cambridge, and that uh, that would essentially involve the application of um, the, the DSM criteria to that to that child. Right, and they might use a behavior checklist. So there's one called the CONUS, for example, okay. which is sensitive to inattention and hyperactivity. So we try to include things like that in our assessment so that checklist is in there. Yeah. For a diagnosis of dyslexia, it's harder. It's I think it's less uniform in terms of what's used to provide the diagnosis. Yeah. And they're usually um, given via a private route. Right. Um, but we have in our battery things that we think should be sensitive to the kinds of difficulties that children with dyslexia are thought to have. So, for example, the dominant theory for dyslexia is that they have a phonological awareness difficulty, and we have those measures in our, we have those measures in our battery. Okay. And I guess in terms of like a, a grand scale, I'm thinking more generally, how many kids are we talking about who might have some sort of learning difficulty in the UK? I'm just thinking of... Really hard to say. Because you've gone 800 in Cambridge area. Those are just the ones that have been sent to us. Just sent to you. Okay. They can, and they can come from schools. They yeah. can come from clinical routes. It's an intentionally broad recruitment. Okay. Because we want to make as few assumptions as possible. Of course. Yeah. Um, so diagnoses of things like ADHD yeah. vary probably somewhere between 3 and 8% for those kinds of diagnoses. Of the entire yeah. kids at school. Oh, okay. yeah. Right. I mean, if you went to the US, you'd find it was much higher. If you went to Sweden, you'd find it was much lower. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, now you could think that maybe there is some fundamental difference in the children in those different countries, or or the testing. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Our approach to diagnosis is very different across those different countries, which is okay. almost certainly what it is. Um, but if you look at the number of kids, for instance, failing their key stage two SATs results, that's end of right. primary school. Well, that varies really according to where the government sets the bar. I mean, it's currently something okay. like thirty percent using the latest data. So that's exceptionally high. Yeah. So what proportion of kids have some kind of developmental difficulty? It's, it's essentially impossible to say. Okay. Um, it's sort of the tail. It's probably the tail of a distribution. And we think there are kind of many routes to struggling at school. Some of them might have a cognitive basis. 
in which case we'd think of it as being like a developmental disorder. But others might have no cognitive basis per se um, to do with the child's environment, family circumstances. And then I think we probably wouldn't say that that child has a developmental disorder. They're struggling yeah. at school for different reasons. Okay. And what's the sort of number of single diagnosis then? Is that, can you? Oh, uh, gosh, that's off of my head. Because ADHD is the one that I know best. And I think that's currently 4%, 4%. in the UK. Okay. Um, understanding the sort of crossover that you've sort of mentioned in the research you found what difference will that make to um, further diagnosis then if there's a sort of a crossover that kids now will be recognized that they'll have multiple difficulties I think there's I think that for, like I was saying I think diagnosis will always be an important thing for parents yeah. I guess what my hope is in the grand scheme of things yeah is that for practitioners, so for instance, like teachers, special, edu yeah. special educational needs coordinators, is that we provide them with the information whereby they can kind of move beyond diagnosis. Yeah. Um, there are some kind of barriers to doing that. Okay. Um, what would they be? Just Well, the number one is that the schools can't access educational psychology services. Right. Okay. Because they can't afford to. Yeah. Okay. So that's the big barrier. So... I'm often people often say, well, how would they get this extra information about how the child is struggling? And the answer is, well, the primary route would be through through an educational psychologist, and most schools now can't afford yeah. to get them in. But the special educational needs coordinators are meant to be embedded within within schools, and I think it would be good for it to be incorporated within teacher training. Yeah, um, to get them thinking about cognition, what cognition is. What are the ways in which cognition can go awry for some children? Yeah. Um, and that really can start the ball rolling for thinking okay. about how do we intervene to try and help those kids. Yeah. Because you're looking at, on a practical level, the implementation, but also on a funding level, on a funding scale, that's, um, that's to me quite a challenge. Yeah. I think if we want a world-class system for special educational needs, we can't do it on a shoestring. No. So big picture wise, what is it that's sort of um, making these difficulties more apparent? Do you mean more apparent relative to in kind of years gone by? Yeah. Is that just simply because of diagnosis or is that no, is it a I trend? Think I, it's hard to know. Yeah. I think a big part of it is about what we expect from kids in schools. Okay. Makes it more and more apparent about those kids who struggle. So, you know, if it really is the case that 30% of kids are struggling to get there expected levels in reading and maths. That means that we're having incredibly high expectations of our kids in primary schools. Now, of course, in some ways, that's a great thing because yeah. we should have high expectations. But the flip side is, if the if the curriculum's not developmentally appropriate, then the challenge is that for those 30% of kids, you've now told them that they're failing. Yeah. And what would be the lasting consequences of that? So we know, for example, that children who have a learning difficulty, kind of broadly defined, around six times more likely to have a mental health condition in later life. Right. So the co-occurrence of having a learning difficulty and having a mental health difficulty are really surprisingly high. Yeah. Um, now, it could be, there are lots of reasons why that might be. It could be, for instance, being told that you're not doing well at school is not good for your mental health. No. Um, it could be that having a mental health difficulty makes it very hard to pay attention at school and make progress. Or it could be that both of those two things have some kind of common antecedents, like particular cognitive problems, 
that maybe may mean that you're more likely to have both a mental health condition and a learning difficulty at the same time. All of those things are possible. Um, but I think understanding why those two things overlap is probably important. And I think that so having really high standards for kids in school is obviously a really, really good thing. But doing well at school isn't just doing well with reading and maths. It's establishing healthy ways of working, healthy ways of thinking, healthy ways of, ways of appraising yourself yeah. and your life. And that really ought also to be a goal of a good education system. Yeah. What are some of the things that have inspired you to make you the scientist that you are today? Big question. Very big question. Gosh, well, I think that probably the most inspiring thing has been people. Right. I Anyone in particular? Or? I couldn't sing. I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to, I couldn't single any individual out. But um, there are a few people that really spring to mind. So when I finished my PhD, which I really enjoyed, actually, and my supervisors were great. And I moved on to Oxford and I worked with two people. One was Guy Sheriff and one was Kia Nobre. And it was just an incredibly kind of dynamic and fun and productive time. So I was a junior research fellow. Right. Um, and we had funding from various different sources for our research. And we, essentially it was a bit of a blank slate. And no one, it was, we hadn't specified too explicitly what we would do. We said the kind of the areas that we would work in. And it just had a really fun time and we produced a lot of research and they were they modeled to me what i thought were really good examples of how to run a group great and how to work with junior staff members i mean i remember when i kind of when i left and you kind of meet other people at a similar career stage and i suddenly realized that i'd been incredibly lucky okay and that i'd had this wonderful kind of golden experience those kinds of postdoc years yeah and that's i'm now increasingly realizing that's not true for everybody no of course because yeah, it's some people have really like a really tough time because yeah. often often when you're a postdoc, there's these kinds of competing demands between kind of what you need from this experience and what your supervisor, supervisor needs. Supervisor wants a little bit, yeah. And those and kind of conflicts surrounding that are very common, and I've never really experienced that. And I guess you know my supervisors could have maybe been could have kind of tried to get more out of me or tried to steer me down paths that they wanted, but they were very good at allowing me to kind of direct my attention to things that okay. I was excited by and I was passionate by. And in the end, it bore lots of fruit. And so that's something that has really stayed with me when I've thought about how I mentor now the kind of early career researchers in my lab. Yeah. And I realized that likewise, if I want them to be productive, to enjoy their time, to be passionate about their science, then you have to let them have ownership of it. Okay. And that has stayed with me a lot. Yeah. Other inspiring person. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Oh, yeah, go for it. Um, a good friend of mine called Alf, Alfredo Carpinetti. Um, he is, he originally was um, an astrophysicist, or well, he still is an astrophysicist. All right, yeah. Um, but he's um, a science journalist, and he set up an organization called Pride in STEM, which is okay. um, an organization for LGBT plus scientists. Um, and as a charity, I think they do really, really great work about promoting more diverse role models yeah um to th the rest of the world and to other lgbt people and so i've tried to support them a lot in their work okay and that's been a really inspiring thing because in, in essence 
for him, you can think, well, why would he do that? It's just because he's really passionate about it. Yeah. Um, and I've found that kind of very inspiring. And what's the sort of work that he's doing then? To, so, to for example, um, at the last Cambridge Science Festival, they ran an event showcasing the work of LGBT plus oh, right. scientists. So yeah. they people would speak, um, take questions on their science, but they would also talk about their experience of kind of going through science. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, they have doing another one at the next Cambridge Science Festival. Um, they try and put on um, events and roadshows where people can come and engage with LGBT plus scientists to try and showcase their work. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's really, really important. So I'm also in charge of the graduate program at RMRC unit. Right. And those graduate students come from all over the world. Yeah. And they've had a very diverse range of experiences of what it's like to be gay or bisexual or transgender yeah. often not very positive experiences okay and it makes a great deal of difference to them to arrive somewhere and to learn very quickly that they can be themselves and actually we get a lot more out of people even being very selfish we get a lot yeah. more out of people when they feel they can be themselves yeah of course yeah. um and so i think on many fronts it's an incredibly important thing to do yeah and so i find that a very inspiring thing to do because it's I think it's something that people rarely do now. I think is to go out there and do something that you're passionate about that doesn't necessarily kind of further your career, but yeah. you think is nonetheless very Just important. Just for the greater good. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Um, other things. I was thinking about hardship. That's I guess it. I feel like I've been quite lucky. Right. Well, I remember one big hardship was when I was nearing the end of my junior research fellow time in, in Oxford. And I guess I was facing what is for many a very common challenge which is the money's running out yeah and what do they do next yep and uh, one of the experiences of being an early career scientist is that you are on soft money mm. often for quite a lot of time is that the sort of two-year sort of yeah two-year three-year contract yep. um and i was applying for all sorts of things all sorts of fellowships not all of them wholly relevant i remember i applied for a physiology fellowship right for one of the oxford colleges and I made it to the interview because I didn't really know anything about physiology, but yeah. which made the interview quite challenging. But yeah, of course. Um, but I was I was applying for everything. Um, did that start right from the beginning, or did you sort of how no. how further along the line of in your? I guess at some point in the second year, okay. of three years, I started to think, well, what's going to yeah. happen at the end of this? And kind of looking for options. And so I applied for a bunch of fellowships, a lot of fellowships. Um, <laughs> what was the ratio? Like, how many did you oh, apply for? Gosh. I must apply for about 20. Okay, right. Do you think you, you, in that time, maybe kind of eight junior research fellowships came up at yeah. Oxford Colleges? No, maybe 15. Okay. Maybe 15. But then a whole bunch of like Welcome Trust fellowships. Yeah. Um, and in the end, I applied for a British Academy fellowship. Right. Um, which I got. Okay. Um, and that kind of came to me really quite late in the day. And I also applied for a faculty position in London and I got that also. Um, so you're in a hot streak then. There was that moment <laughs> where the stars aligned. Yeah. Um, but that facing that moment of, you know, you've spent the last you know three years of PhD, then plus another three years of postdoc, kind of building up to trying to kind of get yeah. onto this kind of career path. And you can see the deadline. Like if I don't get it by that date, then has this all been it's for a waste cliff. of time? Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think sometimes for very senior academics now it is hard for them to place themselves in those shoes i remember when i was at college in oxford one of the one of the i've forgotten what the subject was but 
it, a bunch of the junior research fellows were chatting about this basic problem. Yeah. And one of the academics basically said, oh, well, I had my first my, I had my first faculty position lined up before I finished my PhD. <laughs> and trying to explain to them that <laughs> yeah. that was not the world. No, not now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I think that science has changed a lot in many different ways. Um, and I think that one way it's changed is that scientists are on soft money for a long time before they get there. You get people kind of well yeah. into their 30s, still on kind of two, three-year contracts, incredibly skilled and capable. Yeah. But it's just very difficult to make that step up. And so that was tough. Um, and I guess I'd like to think that it helps me kind of mentor people now who are of in course. the same yeah. position. Um, I also think that, yeah, science has changed a lot. One way it's changed is it's a lot more about team science now. I think the days of the academic being the kind of the lone genius kind of locked away in their office somewhere, they come up with their big paper and that then lands them the, the that this kind is of it, career the money. path. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, yeah. I think it's gone. Okay. Um, and I think probably rightly so. I think there's obviously still space for that kind of inspirational moment. Yeah. But many of the challenges that we're trying to tackle for instance, like child and adolescent mental health, the, the scale of the data required to address that question and the scale of the different yeah, types of expertise of you need. You know, you need to be a data science expert. You need to be a clinician. Yeah. You need to understand cognitive theory and developmental theory. The knowledge need, and the skills. Yeah, you just, need to know how the education system yeah. works. Um, you need to be an economist. Like How you would bring all of that to bear yeah. to, to, to really nail that kind of problem it, on your own it's not going to happen no. and so i think at least in my field we've gradually transitioned to this this kind of model of of team science yeah brings challenges of its own how do you make sure that everyone gets the appropriate credit for their hard work um we probably have to change the way we incentivize science yeah um oh, how do you mean incentivize science so for example Back in the day, it would be, well, if you're not first or last author, you may as well not have bothered. Yeah, of course. Right. But if you've got a paper now which requires about 20 authors because of the scale of the project, yeah. and everyone has worked incredibly hard to really advance our understanding in that field, then you have to look beyond who's first and last author because that kind of team... Because yeah. it wouldn't be possible without exactly. the yeah. economist or the... yeah. Also, for example, I remember I once submitted a grant to the European Research Council, which they widely panned and i remember in their blurb it said we really embrace interdisciplinary research and blue skies thinking and that's nonsense right if you read their funding if you read the, the way they fund research if you if you propose anything that's interdisciplinary you automatically take a big hit in the chances of success and that's because you've got to write a proposal that will fly with say an economist yeah and with a psychologist and with a neuroscientist because any of them could be invited to review it okay and those fields work in fundamentally different ways and it it will be very hard to write one proposal that will appeal to all of them to all, yeah so we have to think about changing the way we do peer review so all sorts of things i think have yeah. to change okay when you move to a, a model of of yeah team science yeah that's yeah i never even thought about that one because you're all, almost essentially getting to the point where it's sort of movie credits you know yeah everyone gets a, a line but it's like to acknowledge the fact that it, it's not just about the first and the last you are everyone is the equal side of it i've sometimes yeah. heard of kind of research assistants and phds not being given authorship and when quizzed the pi will say something like are they only collected the data so essentially they did the science. <laughs> yeah, exactly, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole, the whole thing would be impossible without their contribution. Yeah. 
Um, but that apparently doesn't warrant. Yeah. So I think we need okay. to look at those sorts of things as well. well. Of course. Yeah. It makes sense. It's about time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that science, I think we're, we are moving in the right direction on lots of fronts. Okay. Yeah. And how's that going to be led? How's that going to, how's that change going to happen then? Well, I guess if, for different changes, it will probably be led in different ways. Yeah. I think a big change has to come from the funders. Right. So, for instance, about saying what they think is important when they evaluate an award. Yeah. Um, their strategic agenda for the future. So, for example, child and adolescent mental health is yeah. a big strategic agenda yeah. for many research funders. You need really interdisciplinary projects to do that. Yeah. And you have like, to, yeah. yeah, exactly. And you have to yeah. think carefully about how you're going to evaluate those to choose the right ones. Yeah. Um, and it won't be the same as the way you would choose a traditional project grant. No, not at all. Um, yeah. I think also the way that we publish our research, there's increasingly, people are feeling increasingly that our current system for publishing research probably isn't really fit for purpose. Okay. So the way that it currently works is, you know, we write a paper. Yeah. Then we pay to submit it. Then it might get our, reviewed. <laughs> it yeah. may get reviewed. Yeah. Then some of our colleagues review it for free. Another yeah. one of our colleagues is the editor for free. For free, yeah. Then if it's accepted, we pay a heap of cash. Probably about three thousand pounds. Is it that much? Oh, easily. Right. To, for for it to be published in that journal. Yeah. And if we don't pay that kind of sum, then all the other institutions will have to pay to subscribe to that journal, and and so you soon yeah. realise that essentially, kind of academics are doing a lot of work. Yeah. Um, which is all obviously paid for by the taxpayer yeah. by and large, and then the publisher sort of essentially makes a heap of cash out of it. Yeah. And we're also realizing that there are some, you know, we're getting there, but th for instance, people need to be able to publish their data alongside their papers wherever possible so that people can check the analysis. Yeah. People need to publish their code so that people can check if there's any mistakes. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we need to kind of keep moving forward on as well. Yeah. The way that we publish sense. our science, I think, is key. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, I don't think I have any other questions on that one. So I'm just looking at the time. Is there any? Um, actually, what I could ask you, I saw your the, your front cover of TES. Yes. Yeah, How did that come test. about? That must be in, an inspirational thing for you. That was a really yeah, really quite proud of that actually. That was so I've always done a lot of talks for teachers yeah. anyway, and so we've always been aware that a lot of the work that we do has real translational potential for people who work with kids. Yeah. Um, and when we, so I worked on that paper with Joe Battelt, who's a postdoc with me and Joni Holmes, who's another senior scientist at the unit where I work. And we worked really hard on that paper on the analysis. It's using machine learning to look at the different routes to being a struggling learner and how that marries up with diagnosis or not. And when the story came out and it was quite, to us, it was quite clear what the data were telling us, um, that the, the diagnosis didn't map on well to what machine learning algorithms were learning about this big data set we collected. Um, so we put together a press release, and that was then picked up on lots of different news outlets um, and did some radio stuff. And so we started to kind of get it, get it out there, and we started telling teachers about it. Um, and then we were contacted by the commissioning editor of the Times Educational Supplement and asked us to put together an editorial, a 3,000-word editorial on the paper, right. which was a really great opportunity yeah, of course. for the for us to write, essentially kind of rewrite our paper, yeah. but for a different audience. For a totally different audience. Yeah. yeah, and that was really fun. You know, For example, you had to think about I mean, how do you explain machine learning 
people who don't have that kind of technical background. Yeah. And so we kind of came up with this idea of, well, let's imagine they're not kids, let's imagine they're fruits. Okay. And we're trying to learn about, you know, in what ways are different fruits similar and what ways are they different? Yeah, apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah, could, whole, could yeah. the machine learning learn that citrus fruits are different from berries are different from melons? Yeah. And as a kind of analogy to saying, can it learn that ADHD children are different from children with dyslexia, okay. for example? Um, and it's just very, I think it's very useful to do that because then when you go and speak to teachers in person, you already have a kind of language, a way of describing Total understanding, it. yeah. Yeah, and so anyway, that came out in Tez last week, and they put this really cool kind of fruit graphic on the front cover, so it's like an orange, or it looks like an apple being unpeeled, but underneath the skin it's an orange, orange. which I think is picking up on the fruits analogy that yeah, we use. Yeah, of course. Did they come up with that idea, did you? They did, oh yeah, they, okay. they, they came up with that. That's great, yeah. Congratulations. Thanks, yeah. So I'll just say thank you so much for taking the time to come in and do this. Pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad. That's it from us at the We Are The University podcast. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to the iTunes store or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating. I'm Nick Safel and see you next week.